You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, what I'm saying, Molly, is that time is kind of an illusion. I mean, you have this impression that it's it's just flowing inexorably on, but, but that's not the way it is. It, it doesn't have this steady pace. It still doesn't make sense to me how time is an illusion and that you can have different rates of time. I don't, I don't understand. Well, maybe a demonstration is in order. I mean, could you grab my car keys? They're right over there. Okay, hang on. Why do we need the car keys? Here you go. Well, because we're going to go in the car. That's why. Okay, it makes sense. All right, All right I'll follow you. So this yeah. will help me understand time, oh, it, the it, mysteries it, of time. Th- this is a practical demonstration. It's, it's not just theoretical. We're going right. to really warp time. Okay, go on, get in. Okay, I'll get in. I don't understand why going for a ride, how that has anything to do with time. Well, well, it does. Except wasting time. Yeah, no, because we're going to actually move into the future a little slower than if we just stayed back at the office and put on your seatbelt. I don't know, time moves pretty slow at the office. Yeah, well, it's going to move even slower here. Okay, hang on, let me get buckled. And, And by driving around, it turns out that, as Einstein showed in 1905, our clocks, and that includes, by the way, our metabolism will run a little bit more slowly than those poor devils back at the office. You didn't put on your blinker there. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. So the idea that there's some connection between time and speed, is that what you're saying? When, when you're moving relative to somebody else, then your clock, from their point of view, goes slower. And it isn't just clocks. There's nothing special about clocks. I mean, you know, your heart is a clock. and All, all clocks. Hearts, cell metabolism, atomic clocks, whatever kind of thing you got for keeping time. It's all moving slower. I see you're headed towards the freeway on-ramp. Yeah, exactly. Are we going to use that on-ramp? Well, I figure it's a lot easier for getting on the freeway if we do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so the idea is we're picking up speed here, and what you're telling me is that somehow time is slowing down for us here in this car. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't notice it. Everything seems just completely normal to us. But, wait a minute. Should I stop at this red light? I hate to do that. Because, yeah, please do. I don't want to distract you from the yeah, rules. Yeah, and then our aging speeds up again relative to the folks back where yeah, we Yeah, but started. if you don't stop for the red light, our aging stops abruptly when that we meet that Mack truck. Okay, so here we are, cruising along at uh, about 60, 62 miles an hour. What direction are we headed? Are we headed towards the south, L.A., maybe? Yeah, we're headed toward L.A. I mean, you know, if we just keep going here another eight hours, we'll get there. Here we are on the road. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Are We Alone, where I think Seth is taking us for a ride. Yeah, but for a good purpose here. I'm trying to show you that time is plastic, that time moves at different rates. Time is different throughout the universe. Depending on where you are and how you're moving, your clocks run at a different rate than your galactic neighbors. Also, the psychological perception of time and whether time changes when we feel we're in danger. Now, what's your speed now, Seth? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm up to 68, which I shouldn't be because I think the speed limit here is 65. But since it goes as the square, the faster you go, the better, and it gets better faster. <laughs> okay. Well, Seth's experiment, and Seth himself may seem a little nutty, but I have to concede he is right that time is not always what it seems. At times we perceive it to speed up, at other times to slow down, and we're not the first to notice this. Harvard astrophysicist Roy Gould says that the observation goes back several hundred years at least to the Bard. Rosalind, who's the heroine of 
Will Shakespeare's As You Like It. She's walking with a friend through the forest, and she hears the sighs of lovers, and she says, the sighs keep track of the lazy foot of time. And her friend says, well, why lazy? Why not a swift foot of time? And she has the famous line that time travels in diverse paces for diverse persons. Groaning every hour would detect the lazy foot of time as well as a clock. And why not the swift foot of time? Had not that been as proper? By no means, sir. Time travels in diverse paces with diverse persons. I'll tell you... And, of course, Shakespeare was talking about the psychological perception of time. So I think people have been thinking about how time flows and marveling about it for a very long time. Less than a century after Shakespeare, Newton famously hypothesized that time flowed evenly throughout the universe. So time is the same on Earth as it's the same on Jupiter, right, Seth? Well, yes, and and Newton was, after all, a pretty smart guy. I mean, he, he invented calculus, you know, but on this particular point, he was wrong. Well, let's zoom ahead, as Seth is doing right now. Careful, Seth. Oh, yeah. Oh, you look at that guy changing lanes. Come on. Let's zoom ahead to the 20th century and enter Albert Einstein. Dr. Gould says that through the theory of special relativity and the theory of general relativity, which is the theory of gravity, Einstein worked out that time does not flow evenly throughout the universe. And he was forced to that conclusion by one of the strangest observations in nature, which is that the speed of light is the same no matter whether it's moving towards you or whether the light is moving away from you, no matter how fast you're moving, no matter how you observe light, its speed is always the same. And that's completely different from anything else we know about in the universe, where you can, you can run after a car and almost catch up with it. Light is very different. And that single observation required physicists to completely rewrite their understanding of how space and time are connected with each other. And ultimately, it led to the idea that, um, that the scale of time, the flow of time, can actually change depending on how fast you're moving and on w- how close you are to matter or energy. I wonder if you could say more about that. How is it that when Einstein realized that light flowed at the same speed, moved at the same speed throughout the universe, that, that time could not move at the same speed? It was a chain of reasoning that he used, but the bottom line is that what he found was that space and time are not separate from each other. They appear, of course, completely separate to us. Time is so different from space. But what he discovered was that they are two aspects of one single thing called space-time. And when you, when you move, when you see someone else moving, for example, for them, time slows down slightly compared to you, and they seem to shrink. But there's a combination of size and time that remains the same. This is a little tangential way of getting at it, but uh, it's a little bit like asking somebody the question, how large is your car, your automobile? Well, it depends on which direction you're looking at it from. If If you're looking at it from the side, it seems long, maybe 18 feet long. If you look at it from the front, it's, you're looking at the width, it's not that, it's not that large. And what Einstein found was that space and time are, are similar to that idea. We have to add another dimension to the three dimensions of space, which is the dimension of time. And together, they form a unified whole. Um, whereas if you look at just one or just the other, you get confused because not everyone will agree on the time between two events or the distance between two events. So if you manipulate either space or you manipulate time, the other one has to compensate. Yes, exactly. I can say that. I can sort of get my head around that, but but I really can't. It's very hard to understand what it is I just said. (laughs) We, we, We feel that because in the in our everyday world, we don't see any distortion of time, and we don't see a distortion of space either. And so the idea that time would flow differently seems very alien to us. And in fact, the first evidence that that was the case really came from, um, from particle physics, from people studying cosmic rays. You know, when these strange rays come in from outer space and they hit the top of the atmosphere, they form a whole cascade of, of particles that normally have a very short lifetime. They decay very, very quickly. This is the sort of thing that physicists study in the laboratory. <laughs> and when those particles travel very, very quickly, they actually live for much longer 
because, or they appear to us to live to much longer because our time, because they're moving fast, their scale of time is very different from ours. And that was one of the first tests of relativity, that these particles have it, even though they have their own built-in clock, and the clock says, in a millionth of a second, I'm going to perish. Nevertheless, we see them living for many seconds because they're moving so fast that their clock is now distorted from our clock. It's ticking at a different rate. Now, this is some information I could use. So that whole adage of a slowdown, you move too fast, maybe is not the way we should be living our lives. If there's this connection between time slowing down and speed, the faster you go, the slower time goes. This means that if I run around a lot, maybe I won't age as quickly. <laughs> Can I draw that conclusion? Well, you know, they say here in Boston, um, we walk faster and talk faster than people do say in Wisconsin. How do we know that? Because people have studied uh, um, the, how fast people move in their lives. And I, unfortunately, I don't think we're aging any more slowly here. There is a practical way, of course, that we use Einstein's discovery, and that's with our global positioning system, you know, the, the global, the GPS system that's in your car or that you carry with you when you go backpacking, actually uses the fact that time flows a little bit more slowly here on the surface of the Earth than it does in space where the GPS satellites are stationed. And that difference is only about a billionth of a second over the course of, say, a day, a nanosecond. And you think, well, how can that possibly make any difference? But in a billionth of a second, light travels several feet and so billionths of a second add up. And in fact, if we didn't incorporate Einstein's discovery, then when you, you know, tried to find somebody's house with your car's GPS, you'd wind up in someone else's driveway down the block. Right, or drive right into the ocean or something. Exactly. <laughs> so it translates to many feet on the ground. Yes, to many feet, because, because the GPS system works, your, your device works by measuring the time it takes for signals to come to you from those satellites in space. And they're coming at the speed of of light, those radio signals. Um, and so even a tiny amount of time, tiny discrepancy in the way clocks move would, would lead to a great discrepancy in your location. Well, well here's a question. On the, on the television show Star Trek, you know, that show always starts with Captain Kirk saying something like star date 2734.78 or whatever number they give. But it's a captain's log, right? So it's a, it's a date and it's a time. Yes. But then don't you have to ask, whose time is it? Is it the time aboard the ship or is it the time back home? It certainly can't be the time back home. And if they are giving the time, given everything you just said about the relationship between time and speed, <laughs> shouldn't they also give the speedometer reading of the ship so that one day somebody could coordinate the two? Yes. Yes, they should. And as somebody <laughs> pointed out, actually, um, one of the problems when you travel through the galaxy is this idea that that one person's time has nothing to do with someone else's time. For example, suppose you had a, a newscast for the galaxy. Let's say there's Are We Alone that's broadcast to the whole galaxy. Well, where do you broadcast from? If your news station is, um, let's say, in the center of the galaxy, then, or, or let's say your news, if your news station is here on Earth, then most parts of the galaxy are tens of thousands of light years away. So they won't even get your news until tens of thousands of years from now. So it will be old news. <laughs> um, on the other hand, what's happening there right now on the other side of the galaxy can't influence us and we can't hear about it until the newscast makes it here. And that will take another tens of thousands of years, even at the speed of light. So. So we live in our own little time bubble, if you like, and the rest of the galaxy lives in its own time bubble. So our marketing plan here to reach all corners of the galaxy, we may have to scrap that. You may Sounds have like to cut back a little bit. Need to rethink that a little bit. Okay, so there's this relationship between speed and time, but time can also be warped by gravity as well, yes. can it? How, how so? Yes, uh, what Einstein discovered or predicted was that the closer you get to a massive object like the Earth, the slower the scale of time, that is, the more slowly time flows compared to the way it flows further away from a massive object. Now, here at the surface of the Earth, the effect is very, very slight, so we don't, we don't really notice it. 
but if we lived closer to, let's say, the sun or, or actually to a black hole, which is probably the densest object, then we would really notice it. If you could hover just outside a black hole, for example, time would flow so slowly. When we returned to Earth, everyone would actually, they'd be long since passed away and it would be thousands of years in the future. Um, and so now you get to an extreme difference in time caused just by your proximity to a massive object. So if I were to climb to the top of Mount Everest, this is on my to-do list, by the way, time would run more quickly at the top of the mountain than it does down very, below? Very slightly more quickly, yes. <laughs> you know, time, it's weird. I, I don't know another word for this. The way that time is warped by speed and by gravity is weird. Yes, it is weird. There is one, of course, very familiar effect from it, and that is gravity itself. What Einstein showed was that here on Earth, at least, um, in, where it, gravity is not so extreme, objects fall towards the Earth because that is where time flows more slowly. And so um, when we drop an object, we say, oh, it falls towards the Earth. It's actually moving towards the region where time flows slightly more slowly. So even though we don't notice that effect, it's not a dramatic effect in terms of a clock. We certainly notice it in terms of the fall of objects. So if, if you're on top of Mount Everest, you're not gaining very much <laughs> in, your, in, your in your clock. But if you fall off, you'll certainly notice that effect. <laughs> certainly, if you fall off Mount Everest, you will probably notice the effect. <laughs> Safe to say. Did you know that time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana? Hold it right there. We'll return to my conversation with Roy Gould in a moment. And Seth, it is a red light, so you should hold it too. You're on the freeway. <laughs> We're warping time on Are We Alone? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Are We Alone? As Seth and I try to I don't, remind me again what we're doing, Seth. Uh, we're trying to age a little less quickly here. We're just we're just trying to live longer. Fundamentally, that's it. And more about the physics of that premise as we return to my conversation with Harvard astrophysicist Roy Gould about warping time. Well, the weirdness of time truly gets weird when you consider what happens to time in a black hole. Now, if I were to fall into a black hole, or better yet, watch someone else falling into a black hole, what would I see? If you fall into a black hole, and we imagine now that it's a very large black hole, so large that it takes you a, a long time to fall into the center, and so you can observe what's going on. As you fall in, you notice nothing unusual uh, as far as time goes. Your wristwatch runs exactly at the right time. Everything seems normal to you. But again, that's where you are. To someone outside the black hole, they see something tremendously different. As you fall towards the black hole, your time appears to slow down and actually stop so that you appear to hover just outside the entrance to the black hole. It's called the event horizon. And the outside observer, we, uh, sitting here in our studio, never actually see the person enter the black hole. You just see their image slowly fading away outside the black hole. So my image would just freeze. You would just have yes. a still snapshot of me on the edge of a black hole. Exactly. And in the early days, uh, the early astronomers called it uh, a frozen star for that reason, because anything falling into it uh, appears to freeze. That's, that's a creepy image. Isn't it? Well, it is. It's a little unsettling. Now, it's... that's because there's this massive concentration of gravity in a black hole. That's what a black hole is, right? This massive concentration of gravity? Yes. And all the light that would normally just flow back out to us and send us an image is struggling to get out 
uh, of the gravitational pull of the black hole. And right at the horizon, it can't get out. Even the light can't get out. It falls into the black hole. And so that's why we see nothing at all past that horizon. Does time stop in a black hole then? If you were in the center of a black hole, would time be no more? Two amazing things happen inside a black hole with time. And I I find it hard to wrap my mind around it. But um, the, the first is that time is predicted to come to an end at the very center of a black hole, at the singularity. And we're talking now about the simplest kind of black hole, one that's not rotating or spinning. And, and that's a signal that our understanding of the laws of nature breaks, breaks down, um, that, that Einstein's equations break down, that we really need a new understanding of how nature works. We don't know what it means for time to come to a complete end. The timeline, whatever that direction of time means, is suddenly cut off right at the center of a black hole. And so some physicists have called a black hole the reverse of creation. We don't know how time began either. How could it suddenly start? And so in a sense, a black hole is that creation of the universe in reverse. Everything is destroyed at the center. Time apparently comes to an end, but we don't really know. We don't yet have the science to describe it. Now, a second amazing thing happens uh, inside a spinning black hole, and I find this very, don't ask me to describe it, Molly, but I'm just going to tell you where the state of the science is. Um, <laughs> um, when, when you fall to a certain distance inside a black hole and you, and you can turn around and look at light coming into the black hole from outside, you're seeing light from every part of the universe pouring into your black hole. And the difference in time inside and outside the universe is so great that you actually can see the entire future of the universe, that is, the outside future of the universe, coming in and impinging on a spot inside the black hole. How can you see things that haven't happened yet? Ah, well, that's, that's, they haven't happened, but there's no contradiction because nothing um, that you do inside the hole can ever influence what happens outside the hole. Einstein once said to the widow of a friend of his who had just passed away, he said, you know, to a practicing physicist, the past, present, and future are one and the same thing, by which he meant perhaps everything that can happen in the universe has already happened. We've made all of our choices already that... um, All of our free will has been exercised. We've been born, we've lived, and we've even died. But we haven't, however nature replays all of that, we haven't gotten to it yet. And that's a very strange thought about time. I don't like to think of that. Roy Gould, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you, Molly. Roy Gould is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Doing a nice job speaking and driving, Seth, but I see we're pulling into the parking lot here. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, almost out of gas, so you got to balance that against this experiment and aging less quickly. Ah, okay, I thought you were going to hit that curb. All right, so now we go inside and find out the results. Now, what results do you expect to see when we go inside? Well, they will have aged a little bit more than we have because we've been in a so-called reference frame that's moving. We've been traveling around in. Time isn't the same for them as it is for us. Okay, let's check it out. Okay, well, here, here we are back at, back at work. Let's find some people. Yeah. Hi, Tom. Hi, Seth and Molly. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hello. Well, Seth, I have to say, you know, looking back here, um, I don't see any difference. Yeah, but, but there is, Molly. We've aged less than these people here did while we were gone. I mean, did you notice that Tom had an extra gray hair there on his left temple? Did you no, see that? I didn't notice. Well, how much how much more did they age than, than us? Well, we were gone for let me say, 20 minutes. Uh, it's about a trillionth of a second. We have a trillionth of a second advantage on them? Yeah, compared to what we would have had. Don't, don't you feel a little bit younger? Well, I mean, how does this add up in time? Well, uh, let's see. If I work that out, if I live to be 80 and we drive around all the time, 24 hours a day, then, then I'll live an extra millionth of a second. Well, what about the years that are shaved off my life by driving around with you on the freeway all day? Uh, that's not part of relativity. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, we're not the only ones seeking a way to stop the relentless march of time. I think we succeeded, and I wish the same to commentator and, yes, fellow astrophysicist Simon Steele, who is similarly inspired. I've noticed an unnerving trend lately that people I associate with in my day-to-day existence are looking younger and younger. Not everyone you understand. Mr. Greenblatt, the crossing guard, continues to look prehistoric. But there is my fitness-addicted neighbor, whose only visible flecks of gray appear in the sporty trim of his triathlon tights. And then there's that bubbly 20-something from HR who thinks it's cute that I was born before the first Star Wars movie came out. I've considered cosmetic steps to tackle this whole aging issue. Organic hair dyes, a Botox shot between the eyes, a multi-gym in every room. But time, as we know, is the most uncaring of all the forces of nature. I may still look damn good in the mirror. Without my glasses, every wrinkle dissolves into the smooth porcelain complexion of a youthful Brad Pitt. But the clock, as they say, is ticking. Science, I do believe, has all the answers, even to my runaway biological clock. But in this case, I see the answer to my aging angst coming not from the science of biology, but physics. As we know, time slows down around a black hole. But because you've slowed down, the rest of the universe appears to speed up. Minutes for you are hours, days, years to others far from the black hole. They age fast, you don't. So here's my plan. Black hole spas, delivered to the comfort of your own home. My company, soon to be floated on the stock market under some arcane and inaccessible acronym, will sell you a black hole, tastefully mounted in some sort of ornate cradle, from where its soothing gravity will slow the time around you. I'm going to call it chrono-retardation therapy. I like that. A few hours of chrono-retardation therapy gives you the best of both worlds. You feel younger, and everyone else looks older. Okay, so there are some safety issues that may require a small yellow warning label. Things too close to the black hole, Things like your sofa, your oriental rug, poor Fluffy the kitten, get dragged through the black hole's horizon at the speed of light, heated to millions of degrees and disappearing in a flood of x-rays. There's the gravitational tidal forces, resulting in painful stretching as the gravity molds your body like Play-Doh into spaghetti-like strands. And then there's the whole time thing, which, like lazing on a sunbed, must not be overdone, or you will be. Nap for too long in front of your black hole, and you'll wake four billion years in the future. The sun will be big and red, and the earth will be ruled by cephalopods. Despite these teething troubles, black hole spas will be the next big thing. And I'll not only be the CEO of this new multi-billion dollar astrocosmetics industry, I'll also be a client. The new me, 12 foot 6 in height, very, very slim, tanned, some would say toasted, and with a house mercifully free of clutter and cat hair. I'll be the talk of the town, even if the town's first language is octopus. Astrophysicist Simon Steele is a younger, tanner version of himself at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Well, you don't need to be near a black hole to experience the warping of time. We all have experiences in which time seems to speed like a greased cheetah or crawl like a glacier or even come to a screeching halt. In life-threatening moments, such as when an out-of-control vehicle is barreling your way, you may feel that time slows down. But does perceived time really slow down? Well, that's the sort of question that neuroscientist David Eagleman puts to his staff at the Laboratory for Perception and Action at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. In fact, he's tested whether time seems to slow down, and he says that scientists are learning that the perception of time is a consequence of what's happening in the brain and that it can be deliberately altered. We can now show in the laboratory all kinds of manipulations, all sorts of illusions. For example, in my lab, I can make you think that something took longer or shorter than it actually did. I can make you think something came before something else, even though it was the other way around. I can make you think two simultaneous things are non-simultaneous and vice versa. And what this illustrates is exactly like we've known with visual illusions and vision, that time itself is a construction of the brain. I've read that you've said that the brain lives a little bit in the past. What does that mean? It takes time to, for the brain to register neural signals. So when signals hit your eyes, the electromagnetic radiation gets converted into electrical and chemical signals in your brain. And same when air compression waves hit your eardrums. And same when your fingertips encounter pressure. So what happens is all these things get converted into these electrical and chemical signals, which travel unbelievably slowly around in your brain, sort of 800,000 times slower than signals in a digital computer. So it takes time for these signals to get where they're going in the brain and manipulate the network of activity and for the brain to finally settle on an event, on a story about what just happened. 
So, for example, when I clap my hands like that, it takes a certain amount of time for the visual system to process the sight and a certain amount of time for the auditory system to process the sound. And it turns out that the auditory system is much faster than the visual system, which is why they use a, a gun at the Olympics to start the sprinters because you can react very quickly to a bang. But it turns out that even though your auditory system is much faster than your visual system, the clap will still look simultaneous. So when you look at that clap, it appears as though it all happened at once. So your brain synchronizes it. Well, yes, and the only way it can accomplish that is by collecting up the auditory information and then collecting up the visual information and then stitching it together into a story about what's happening out there. And by the time all this is done, you're living in the past. When you think that the moment now occurs, it's already happened because it takes time for those signals to travel around and get coordinated and stitched together. So what it means is that your perceptual life is like one of these live television shows, like Saturday Night Live, which is not actually live. These, these television shows are aired with a slight delay in case they need to make an emergency edit, and it turns out that that's what your waking life is like. You're seeing everything with a delay. Well, I suppose we've all experienced this in, in different ways forms, the idea that the time can slow down or speed up, um, that it can be warped through our everyday lives. If we're doing something that's really, really dull, um, time seems to drag on indefinitely. And then there are other times um, when we're doing something that we love and time flies. But also those moments when you're in a crisis and time really slows down and you feel like you're, you're thinking more clearly than you ever would be. Those are all perceptions of time that somehow are being um, warped in the brain? Well, it turns out the, this issue about does time actually slow down during slow motion is something I wondered about for years. And so we've performed the only experiment in history on testing whether this is true. So <clears throat> what we did is we we dropped people from a 150-foot-tall tower in free fall, and they landed in a net below going 70 miles an hour. And now, I should say, complete... oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. And I should say you did that because that's a very scary thing for anyone to experience. You, you purposely picked something that was pretty harrowing. Yes. We picked this because it was absolutely safe, but completely terrifying. And it turns out that... Um, People have a duration distortion here, meaning they think that it took longer. So we have people retrospectively with the stopwatch estimate how long they think it took. And um, we compare that to their estimates when they're watching other people fall and they retrospectively estimate how long someone else's fall took. So it turns out when you're remembering your own fall, you think it took much longer. But here's the heart of the experiment. What we did is we had to develop a device so that we could actually measure their time perception while they were falling for the three seconds that they were actually in free fall. And this device was strapped to their wrist and it flashed information at them in a particular way such that if they were really seeing the world in slow motion, they would be able to read certain numbers on the device. And if they were seeing the world in normal motion, then they would see something else on the device. And what we found really surprised us, which is that during a really terrifying moment, people cannot actually see the world in slow motion. In other words, the speed of their vision was no better when they were in free fall versus when they were just on the ground. And you sure they were looking at the clocks? Because yes, I would we... be so busy screaming, I don't know. <laughs> it turns out nobody screams on the way down because it's much too scary. You, you sort of freeze up. In, in free fall, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, that's because nobody's screaming. That's right. So... So what you found, what you're saying, what you found is that even though it seems like in these very scary events in our lives, time seems to slow down, you found with your, with your jumpers here, your free fallers here, that it, it actually did not. That's correct. So what happens is they are no, they're not like Neo in the Matrix. They're not seeing the world in slow motion. And yet, the surprising paradox is afterwards they believe the whole event took longer. So what's the explanation for this? Well, it turns out that when you're in a scary event, a different part of your brain called the amygdala kicks into gear and lays down memories essentially on a secondary memory track. So what happens is memories get laid down in a really dense way, much more densely than normal. And when people read these memories back out, they believe the event must have taken longer because they're not used to such rich, detailed memories. So in retrospect, they believe that it must have taken a long time. 
So this shows that memory and time are very tightly intertwined. So it's really just a trick on the memory that the brain is playing in that the brain is playing in those situations. Exactly. But exactly. it does seem that you can often think more clearly in in a case of an emergency um, where something horrible has happened and you need to respond. I've been in that situation and I feel like I'm thinking very clearly. That that that's exactly right. Although for a slightly different reason, um, when you're in an emergency situation this part of the brain, the amygdala, is involved, and it's sort of your emergency mission control center. And what it does is get all of the things going on in the brain to stop doing their little processes and pay attention to what's going on. So normally, your brain is doing 57 things. It's rounding out your grocery list and thinking about where you're going for dinner tonight and all sorts of things. But in an emergency situation, all that stuff gets quieted down, and everybody's paying attention to the situation at hand. And as a result, uh, one one can definitely think more clearly. Now, what do, what sort of situations um, create this create this perception that time is slowing down? Do they have to be actually life threatening? I mean, if I were on a roller coaster or driving down 880, which I'll tell you in California is about as harrowing as it gets <laughs> um, when it comes to speed, uh, will time slow down? Seem to go longer in those cases? It it appears to really depend on it being life threatening, and I don't know why that is. Oh, I do know why that is. It's because it's because the amygdala only gets involved when you're really terrified. So this whole thing started when I <clears throat> I, I wanted to test this. So I brought my whole lab to the uh, amusement park here in Houston, Astroworld, and we went on the scariest roller coasters, and and we brought all our equipment with us. And it turned out we weren't getting any effect. You don't actually get this impression that time was running more slowly. When you're in something like a roller coaster, we were laughing and having a good time. It really has to be something where you're truly terrified. That appears to be the situation. Now, another case where people find that time has shifted for them is when they get into a zone. They're doing something that they really love to do and they experience, which is a very pleasant experience, sort of the melting away of time. You feel that time stops. You're you're in this flow of doing something that you really love. Uh, What's going on in the brain? Um, it's not clear. It's not clear what happens in the flow state. Um, but again, it, it seems to have to do with concentration on one thing. So instead of all the normal chatter happening in your brain, everything's concentrating on, on one event. And when you're in that state, you're actually not paying attention to the passage of time. And that may be, <clears throat> that may be the key element. You're, in other words, you're not consulting your wristwatch every few moments. Um, but instead you're completely devoted to something else. And when you don't pay attention to the passage of time, then it goes quickly. Now, is it true that one's life flashes before one's eyes uh, when you think you're going to die and you're in a scary situation? Is it, And is is there an explanation? Yeah. And, and how, how might you explain that in terms of time? Well, I'm glad you asked that because this is actually one of my next projects is to figure out whether this is true. I actually have no reason at this point to believe that it's true. And uh, I think what's happened is it's become a phrase. So if you want to express to somebody that something was very, very frightening, you say, oh, my life flashed before my eyes. But I'm not sure that we have any neurobiological reason to think that's something that actually happened. So I'm trying to find cases now where people report that this, in fact, did happen to them, not just as an expression of the language, but something that they can really describe. Do you have uh, a website you want people to contact you if if that's if they've had that experience? Sure, yeah, that would be great. Uh, my website is eaglemanlab.net. And finally, David, what's a situation in your life in which time seems to just crawl for you personally? Committee meetings. <laughs> okay. And when does it seem to just fly by? Um, when I'm with my dog at the dog park. And you're happy? And I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, David, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Molly. And did time fly by in this interview, or did it crawl? (laughs) Flew by. I cannot believe it's over already. (laughs) Okay. David Eagleman is neuroscientist and director of the Laboratory for Perception and Action at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, 
flat earth theory. And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. When Ron Mallett was growing up in the 1950s, like a lot of young boys, he was mesmerized by the fantastic future described by science fiction, in particular, the novel The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, in which a Victorian inventor builds a machine that can take him both to the past and the future. Would you like to see the time machine itself, asked the time traveler. And therewith, taking the lamp in his hand, he led the way down the long, drafty corridor to his laboratory. Parts were of nickel, parts of ivory, parts had certainly been filed or sawn out of rock crystal. The thing was generally complete, but the twisted crystalline bars laid unfinished, upon the bench beside some sheets of drawings, and I took one up for a better look of it. Well's story came to mean a great deal to the youthful Mallet when his father, who was only in his 30s, suddenly died. Dr. Mallet is now a physicist at the University of Connecticut. Time Traveler is the story of his attempt to build a machine that would reunite him with the father that he so prematurely lost. When I was 10 years old, my father, who, for me, he was a giant. The sun rose and set on him. Everything was centered around him, and he looked extremely healthy, but he died of a massive heart attack when he was only 33 years old, and I was devastated. I went from a, being a happy kid to a depressed kid, but one of the gifts he left me was a love for reading, and about a year after he died, when I was 11, I came across H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine, and that is what saved me. I think, actually, in a way, saved my sanity because I had a mission. I decided that if I could build a time machine then I could go back into the past and see him again and maybe save his life by telling him what was going to happen. So that became the reason why I became interested in time travel. Well, at the time, now you say you were very young, were you aware of the arguments that some physicists would make saying that you were considering a, a mission impossible? No, I think the advantage of my youth was the fact that I was totally unaware of scientific arguments of any sort. I mean, my father had introduced me to little toys like gyroscopes and things like that, but uh, he was a television repairman. But, you know, there was no scientists in the family, and, so I, and I hadn't even thought about that. So you might say it was my innocence that allowed me not to worry about it and to decide that this was okay. Let me get to your life stories a little bit here, because uh, this book is a fascinating description of your journey from, you know, this early tragedy to academia. But... As a young child, did you see this path so clearly? Because you didn't go directly into, into academia. Absolutely. It was not directly from point A to point B. After my father died, we were very poor. And I should mention this. Uh, we were an African-American family. And in the 50s, even though my mother had a high school education, she was only able to get very menial jobs, and it was extremely difficult. So college was not in my future. And originally, I thought about becoming an electrical engineer because my father was a television repairman. I thought maybe somehow electronics would help me with a time machine. I went to the Air Force after high school, uh, and I thought that if I could save up the money while I was in the Air Force, then I could save up the money to go to uh, college. But once again, I did not tell people that my goal was to build a time machine. Well, you describe in your book how you would, uh, you know, spend nights you know, reading relativity and so forth. Presumably, when you got your job at the University of Connecticut as a provisional faculty member, I think, at the beginning there, your specialty was relativity? That's right. I mean, when I got my Ph.D., I went to Penn State and I got my Ph.D. Uh, in actually relativistic physics. But here's the thing. What I realized was the fact that if I tried to get a job you know, by saying when they interviewed me, what I'm trying to do is build a time machine, I, we would not be talking here right now. I knew that uh, not only wouldn't I get in, but there would be no way that even if I got in, I would get tenure. But it turns out that it, there was something that I could study, which were black holes. I realized that if I studied black holes and studied how gravity affected time, and that was part of Einstein's theory, that I could make that as my uh, cover story. 
Let's talk a little bit about time travel then, because, um, of course, we can all go forward in time. I'm going forward in time right now at about one hour per hour, I guess. That's right. But there's something in special relativity called the twin paradox, which is to say that if I had a twin, or even if I didn't have a twin, but my office mate were to take off in his car down the freeway for the rest of the afternoon and come back, according to Einstein, he might age slightly less quickly than I will sitting in my office. And that suggests that you could, in fact, you know, change the speed at which you go into the future, right? That's right. Well, moreover, what you've just suggested has been done, and this people aren't aware of this. In 1971, there was a very important experiment called the Heifel-Keating experiment that was done at the Naval Observatory. What they did was to take two atomic clocks, which, as you know, the most precise time mechanism we have, and they kept one of the clocks stationary at the Naval Observatory. The other atomic clock was put on an ordinary passenger jet and flown around the world about the speed of sound. When they brought that passenger jet back, they found that exactly as Einstein predicted, the atomic clock on board the passenger jet had slowed down. It had lost time compared to the clock that it was rest. This means, in fact, you know, since your heart rate and your metabolism are clocks, this means that everyone on board their time slowed down. That means that the scientists on board, as well as their equipment, they aged fractions of a second less than people that were stationary at the Naval Observatory. This means that that whole plane and the crew flew into the future. It was only fractions of a second, but it was measurable. Okay, so if I want to go to the 23rd century to see if Captain Kirk really exists, all I need to do is go 99 point whatever, percent the speed of light for a while, and then I'll, you know, I'll come back to Earth and uh, doggone it, it's the 23rd century. Now, there are some technical problems there, of course, getting up to that speed and so forth, but that's, you know, that's rocketry. That's right, that's technical. That's technical, right. that's not physics. But what about traveling backwards in time, because after all, that's what you're interested in doing. That's right. Is that, that's even, right. Is that even theoretically possible? Yes. And once again, the key is Einstein's theory of relativity, but it's his second theory. Einstein developed the special theory of relativity in 1905. And you can put the special relativity in a capsule way. You can say that the special relativity is about the speed of light, and it's about the speed of light and time. Now, the general theory of relativity, which was developed in 1915, 10 years later, it deals with gravity. That is to say that Einstein's general theory of relativity allows for you to manipulate gravity in such a way that you can create loops in time. And there was a theory that was developed a long time ago by a man named Gödel, who's actually a very famous mathematician, who postulated that if the entire universe were rotating as a whole, you would actually be able to create, using Einstein's general theory of relativity, these loops in time. Now, our universe isn't rotating as a whole, but it turns out that when I realized what Gödel had done, I realized that this meant that general relativity opened up the possibility of going back into the past, and that's where I made my breakthrough. But the usual objection to time travel into the past is is the idea that, uh, well, you know, what happens if you go back and you kill your grandfather or that kind of thing? Or, and I think Stephen Hawking may have said this, if this really were possible, we would see time travelers from the future sort of touring around, and we don't seem to. Um, how, how do you address these, these common sense objections, if you will? Right, right. You have to remember that it's the device that's creating these loops in time. When you turn on the device today, whatever the mechanism is, it's the thing that begins to affect space-time. So if, let's suppose I turn it on today and leave it on for 100 years. Then 100 years, someone could come back 25, 50, 75 years, all the way back up to the time the device was turned on, but you can't go earlier than that. That means that all that's simply saying is, is that the reason why we haven't seen time travelers from the future is that a time machine for humans hasn't been invented. In fact, what I tell my students is, is that if someone tells you that there are time travels from the future, and every now and again you read in the newspaper this sort of thing, I say, be polite to them and say, oh, that's nice, show me your device. Because a time traveler cannot materialize into something that isn't there yet. I'm talking with Ronald Mallett, professor of physics. Ron, in your book, uh, you talk about having built an actual experimental device to produce these closed time loops, which might give you the ability to go into the past. Um, 
how's it looking so far? I mean, have you been able to do that? Have you any proof of concept so far? We are all used to the notion that matter creates gravity, but it turns out that in Einstein's theory, not only does matter create gravity, but light can create gravity too. So my theory is based on using light to manipulate time. And it turns out that if you create a circulating beam of light, and there are actually devices that can do this, they're called ring lasers, then it turns out that when you do that, when light is moving around in a loop, it can actually stir the empty space around which it's, it's circulating. In addition, in Einstein's theory, and this is the key, whatever it is you do to space also happens to time. This means that if you swirl the space around and strongly enough, eventually it will twist time into a loop. And now you can see what begin to happen. If you're moving along that loop, you can go from the past to the present to the future, but you've connected the top and the bottom of that line and you've made a loop. That means you can go from the future back into the past. What's your prediction? Will we ever be able to build a, a, a real time machine in the same sense that H.G. Wells described it or Rod Taylor portrayed it, where we could, could really go back in time? Well, I think perhaps eventually, but what my work is is not to send human beings back. What we're interested in is subatomic particles and information. That implies that we would have a way of sending information back to ourselves, for example, to warn ourselves of something like an earthquake. Think of the thousands of lives that we could save. All right. And finally, Ron, I'm sure you still want to see your father again. Do you still hold out hope for that? Well, not with a terrestrial machine. But to me, the legacy of this, and that's what I feel good about, the legacy of this is that it... If it's this possible to, to develop a device that can, in fact, help mankind, to give us the control of our destiny that we never had before, I think that would be a fitting legacy for him, and I would be satisfied with that. Ron Mallett, thanks so much for moving a few minutes into the future with me. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Seth. Ron Mallett is a physicist at the University of Connecticut. His memoir is Time Traveler, a scientist's personal mission to make time travel a reality. Well, Seth, you know, I think all of us can think of someone who's no longer with us that we'd like to visit with a time machine. Well, sure, Molly. I, I think my father, really. Be my mother, I would like to see again. It's not only family members, of course, and the people that we love. There are also events in time that we'd love to go back to, something in history. What, what would you like to see? Uh, I think the hammering of the Golden Spike in 1869. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. Personally, I'd like to go back to the American Revolution. And among these are life, liberty, and... Good so far, Tom. How about pursuit of... I'm going with pursuit of la dolce vita, John. As you wish, although maybe happiness would be a tad more sober. But be sure to scribble something after that about thanking Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for their help on the show, for posterity and all. I wouldn't mind going back to those exciting times, Molly. Then again, today was one of those days, and I'd be happy enough if I could just start it all over again. That one we can do. Okay, go on, get in. Okay, I'll get in. I don't understand why going for a ride, how that has anything to do with time. Well, it, well, it does. Because, Except wasting time. Yeah, no, because we're going to actually move into the future a little slower than if we just stayed back at the office and put on your seatbelt. I don't know, time moves pretty slowly. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.